0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at HopeHullUMC.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning. I'm delighted to see you. Take your copy of God's Word and find the Old Testament book of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. We're going to look at just one verse of scripture this morning. That'd be verse 10. And while you are finding that portion of God's word, just a a word of gratitude to you for uh, loving uh, our daughter Naomi and her husband Matt and our wonderful grandchildren Patrick and Vivian and Jackson. Uh, Kim and I were out of the country. We were in Canada and got a phone call that a Methodist preacher had expressed some interest in dating our Baptist daughter, and so I never thought uh, that uh, any of my children would marry outside the Baptist faith. (laughs) So I early on tried to persuade Matt he would make a great Southern Baptist preacher. But in God's providence, he was not willing to budge off his Methodist background and beliefs and convictions. So he's making a great Methodist preacher for which I give thanks to God. And uh, we rejoice at what the Lord is doing here at Hope Hall uh, Methodist Church. Uh, I want to speak this morning on the preacher's sacred calling. The dividing line in churches in the United States today is not so much between Methodists as it is between those who believe the Bible and obey the Bible and preach the Bible and those who do not. So, in every denomination, you have what people we would call liberals who doubt the veracity and the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God, and you have those who embrace the authority and the veracity and the trustworthiness of the Word of God. And though you don't know me, may I be so bold today to suggest to you that the moral confusion that we have in our country today, especially as it relates to the erotic liberty movement— the gender issues and the, and the sexual, sexuality issues that we face today, uh, a lot of the blame can, can be placed on the churches because the churches have not taken a clear stand on what the Scriptures say. And much of the blame in the churches resides in the pulpit because far, far too many of our preachers have not faithfully expounded the entire council of the Word of God. That's one of the reasons that I preach systematically through books of the Bible, beginning with chapter one, verse one to the end of the book. That's why your pastor preaches in a similar manner, because when you preach in that manner, you are you are, if I might say, you have to deal with with the not only the sweet texts, but the sour ones. You have to deal with the ones that are pleasing to our ears. And you have to deal with the ones that perhaps we don't want to hear for various reasons. And so God has been gracious to you to give to you. And Matt O'Reilly, a pastor who preaches the whole counsel of God. And I do believe with all of my heart that if every church in America, whether it's Methodist, Pentecostal, Episcopalian, Baptist, whatever, if every church had a pastor who systematically and faithfully expounded the entire counsel of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, in a matter of a few short years, we would see a great revival break out. Our issues, which are moral, are not cannot be solved politically. They can only be solved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your, your pastor is, a, is an outstanding preacher. I've heard him preach through the years uh, that uh, he's been in our family. And uh, in fact, the last time—maybe not, not the last time—but because I was here back around Christmas time to hear him preach, but uh, I heard I heard uh, Pastor Matt preach back in November in the chapel service at the Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Stanford University. And when the service was over, I was talking with Dr. Robert Smith, who's one of the premier preaching professors of the last generation, and he said to me, "That young man is a preacher." And I said, indeed he is. So this morning I want, to th- I want to think, I want you to think with me about the preacher's sacred calling. And uh, as we do so, I think you're going to be grateful to be able to leave when we're done to say, yes, God has given us such a man as we find here in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Now Just the the, the context here, let's look in verse uh, 8-9 before we get to verse 10, and I'll just preach from verse 10. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month where the gracious hand of his God was on him. So the context is... 70 years the Jewish people had been in exile in Babylon and now they were beginning to come back to Jerusalem. The walls were being built the gates were being built and Ezra comes to, to link arms with uh, the political leader the governmental leader Nehemiah to rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem and when Ezra comes as he's the priest of God, he's not political verse 10 says Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to its teachings and laws in Israel. So today, the preacher's sacred calling. Now may I suggest that uh, uh, preaching is, is dangerous work. And it is particularly dangerous to the preacher's ego. Uh, some years ago, when our granddaughter Margaret Ann was about four years of age, they were visiting us on a, on a Sunday... And I was seated on the front row, and Margaret Ann was seated next to me, and we were singing the last song, and I leaned over to Margaret Ann, and I said, now, Margaret Ann, uh, Papa, that's what my grandkids call me, is about to go up and preach, and I want you to listen really, really well today, Margaret Ann, and when I'm done at lunch today, I want you to tell me one thing that you remember from the sermon. She said, okay. So we sat down at Sunday dinner, I said, Margaret Ann, uh, tell me one thing that you that you remember from the sermon today, and she she's, she's Thought and thought and thought, and she said, Papa, I don't remember anything. <laughs> and uh, then we went to church on Sunday night. We came home on Sunday night, and she brought it up. She said, Papa, I remember something that you said in the sermon this morning. So I kind of brightened up, and I said, Well, what was that, Margaret? Ann? And she said, Papa, you said, Fine chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a pretty good blow to my ego. Years later, when Vivian was about six years of age, similar thing happened. We were on the front row. I said, Viv, I'm about to go up and preach. I want you to remember one thing and tell me at lunch today. So we sat down at lunch, and I said, Vivian, what is one thing you remember that Papa said in the sermon today? And she said, Papa, you said, please be seated. <laughs> <laughs> so it's enough to make a preacher quit. Uh, most, of us, most of us who are preachers need a little humbling to our ego. I want to, I want you folks here at, at uh, Hope Hall to know that uh, preaching is hard work. And Sunday comes every seven days. And what you receive on the Lord's Day is the result of a lot of labor that's gone on Monday through Saturday in the pastor's study. The greatest contribution... That your pastor has, or any pastor in any church has, to make to his congregation is the, is the contribution that happens when he stands before the assembly of God's people, on the Lord's day, opens the Scripture, reads it, and explains it in the anointing power, of the Holy Spirit, calling the congregation to repentance, faith, and obedience. Now, a pastor has a multitude of tasks to do. He wears a, a lot of hats, but his most important contribution takes place on the Lord's day when he stands in the pulpit. And the adversary has many many uh, weapons at his disposal to bring down pastors. We all grieve when there's another account of a pastor's moral failure. It happens far too often. We grieve when a pastor apostatizes. We grieve when a pastor's marriage fails, and that eliminates him from the gospel ministry. But Satan has snares that are far more subtle than that, and many times more effective. For instance, uh, Satan tempts some pastors to seek to be chief executive officers, and they're just sort of you know they're just you know running running the church staff as if it's a corporation. Or Satan would tempt some pastors to major on being a chaplain who's always available every time somebody has a runny nose to go pray over them. Nothing wrong with chaplains. Pastors do that. But a pastor's primary mission is not to be a chaplain. There's a difference between being a pastor and a chaplain, and wise is the church that knows the difference between the two. Uh, some churches on the political uh, left want a pastor who's a social justice warrior. Some on the, on the right want a church who's, who's, who's a political warrior for their causes. And uh, some churches just want a life coach. They don't want to hear the Word of God. They just want a few tips about uh, how to have a better marriage or how to, how to balance your budget. Well, I want to suggest this morning that God has not called men to be life coaches or just to be chaplains or to be CEOs, but God has called them to preach the Word of God. That is the preacher's sacred calling, and it is his primary mission. And when the pulpits of the churches of the United States of America get fixed, the churches will get fixed. And when the churches get fixed, the culture will be changed from within. So let's think this morning from Ezra chapter 7 about the preacher's sacred calling. Look at the text one more time. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study of and the observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is one of those texts that just breaks itself down immediately before our eyes. So there are three components of the preacher's sacred calling that are revealed to us in the pages, excuse me, in this 10th verse in Ezra chapter 7. Number one, the preacher is called to study God's word. Uh, whatever else the preacher does, if he's going to preach, he must study the Word of God. Notice the pattern that, that Ezra sets for us here in verse 10. We read that Ezra devoted himself to the study of the law of God. When he, by saying that he devoted himself, that means he pursued diligently the study of of God's Word. He set his heart on knowing the Word of God, and may I suggest that by doing so, he set a pattern for the apostolic church that we read about in the New Testament. We won't take the time to go there, but you can go to Acts chapter 6 later and read for yourself how there was a controversy in the church in Jerusalem between the widows there, the Hebraic widows and the Grecian widows and the uh, they, some, some of the widows felt like they were being uh, overlooked and neglected in the distribution of uh, food. And uh, so there was some murmuring that took place. And the apostles, which would be uh, the same thing as pastors today. The apostles in the Jerusalem church, instead of trying to run after and take care of all the widows, they, they came together as a church and they decided that, that they would appoint seven men to take care of that issue. And that the apostles themselves, now watch this, said we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And so the apostles did not get taken off in a side street doing things that uh, were good at the expense of that which was the best. The best for the apostles, just like the best for Ezra, just like the best for every pastor in every generation is to be a student of uh, of the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God. That's why Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, told uh, young Timothy, Preach the Word, be prepared in season and out of season. If a preacher's gonna stand and take and, and, and feed the people on the Lord's day, he must come to the pulpit prepared. It is inexcusable for the pastor to ever stand before God's people unprepared. Now, may I say to you, in my 50 plus years of being a preacher, I'm preaching more than 6,000 times that I always wanted another day to work on my sermon to make it better, another hour, another 10 minutes I can make it better. But the fact of the matter is Sunday comes every seven days, and you stand and you proclaim the Word of God because you've lived in that passage all week long. You have prepared yourself, you've studied the Word of God. And uh, Joseph Parker was a famous preacher in late 19th century London. And uh, Joseph Parker was asked about the impact of his ministry and his preaching in particular. And Parker said this, and I quote, If I had talked all week, I could not have preached on Sunday. That is all. Mystery there is none. I have made my preaching work my delight, the very festival of my soul. So preaching is primary and therefore the study of the word of God in order to be prepared to stand on the Lord's day to proclaim the word of God is very, very important. When your pastor is in the study, when he is, when he is locked himself away with God, uh, that, that, is, that is vital work. And you, you must guard that and protect that and not try to, not try to needlessly uh, interrupt him. I, I said to the churches that I pastored, basically only pastored three churches and 42 in one church, but I said to them, uh, I, I need time to study. And I'm a, I am always available for a genuine crisis. But for somebody just to pop in and say, hey, pastor, I got nothing to do today. I thought I'd drop by and spend some time with you. Well, that, that's, not, that's not good. A pastor needs to closet himself away with the Word of God in the study and let other things wait. I would return phone calls at the end of the day. I would sometimes let the correspondence wait a few days so that I had time to be prepared to study God's Word. And this Bible is an inexhaustible resource for preaching. You, a preacher never will run out of material to preach. My goal when I first started out was to preach through every book of the Bible, and I, 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 I didn't live long enough to do that. I mean, you had to live several lifetimes to do that, to do it well. Owen Strahan said, and I quote, The minister's study is where the church's health is decided. If the minister is weak in the study, he will be a mouse in the pulpit. If the minister is strong in the study, he will be a lion in the pulpit. We want lions, not mice, in our pulpits, and indeed we do, and it starts with the study of the Word of God. Now look again in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Not only did Ezra devote himself to the study of the Word of God, but we read there that he devoted himself to the observance of the law of the Lord. Preacher's sacred calling calls for the study of God's Word, but it also, number two, calls for obedience. The preacher is called to obey God's Word. In other words, this is a call to personal holiness. We read in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, where the Lord says, Be holy as I am holy. That's what obedience to the Word of God is. It is to walk in moral purity and humble holiness. We don't just read the Bible to learn facts. We read the Bible to be transformed. It's not there for our information. It is there for our transformation. I've not known many people like this, some of the meanest church members I ever knew, Knew the Bible really, really well. But it hadn't made much impact on them. It's how do you come to the book? It's not enough just to know the words of the Scriptures, it's to obey the words of the Scriptures. Uh, James, a half brother of our Lord, in the little epistle that bears his name, said, Do not merely listen to the Word of God, do what it says. And the Apostle Paul said, and I quote, we put no stumbling block on anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Paul said to Timothy that the pastor must be a man who is above reproach, blameless. We can't be sinless, but we can be blameless. And we can walk in holiness before the Lord. And the greatest gift, that your pastor or any pastor could give to any church would be his personal holiness. One of my great heroes of the faith, Robert Murray McShane was pastor of a church in Dundee, Scotland. He died at age 29, but he left an incredible impact in his own generation and down to this very hour. And he would pray a prayer that I pray for myself, and he would pray, Lord, make me as holy as as a redeemed sinner, can be made. On one occasion, McShane wrote a fellow pastor on the necessity of guarding his own life and walking in holiness. And he said, remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. Now watch this. It is not great talents, God blesses, so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And we need preachers who walk in moral purity and humble holiness before God. And before their congregations and before the world. Some many years ago, I was having a pity party one day. I was uh, complaining to the Lord uh, that God had failed me. I said to the Lord, Lord, why can't I be like Pastor so and so in our community? Particular pastor there. These are all older pastors. I was a young pastor at the time He's he's a gifted writer. He writes an article for the Sunday paper every week Why, why didn't you make me a gifted writer like pastor so-and-so? And then I said Lord uh, why, why why didn't you give me people skills like pa- another pastor? And then I said Lord, why didn't you give me a great uh, wit like another pastor in our community? And then I said Lord, why didn't you give me? Uh, a great intellect, like another pastor in our community who had studied with Karl Barth. And I was just feeling sorry for myself, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, Well, you can be holy. You don't have to be witty or have great people skills or be a gifted writer to be used to the Lord. Just be holy. Be holy as I'm holy, saith the Lord. And holiness is important to, for in the life of every child of God, but doubly so in the life of those who stand in the pulpits of our churches. I was in high school, like you. We read the Canterbury Tales, and you remember what it was said about the the priest in the Canterbury Tales. It said, if the gold rusts, what will the iron do? The man who stands in the pulpit on the Sunday has a has a, a lifestyle that dishonors the Lord. It's not totally and fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Who does not walk in holiness? It affects the life of the congregation as well. And so the preacher needs to obey the word of God. As we obey the word of God, we walk in holiness with the Lord. Now, back to Ezra chapter seven, verse ten. We've seen there that the preacher is called to study God's word. The preacher is called to obey God's word. Now, finally, number three, the preacher is called to proclaim God's word. Looking in verse ten. For Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Pastor, the preacher is the primary teacher in the church of the word of God. Its laws, its precepts, its principles, its doctrines. And exactly that's exactly what Ezra did. Uh, hold your place in Ezra chapter 7 and find Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah is really close to Ezra. Uh, You just turn a few pages to the right, and you'll find Nehemiah chapter 8. I wish we had time to look at this entire chapter, this great revival that broke out there at the water gate. But look in verse 3. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it, that is, the word of God, the law of God. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. How'd you like to go to church from sunrise to noontime? As they faced the square before the water gate in the presence of all the men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of The law, And then look down in verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. So it is the preacher's job to study the word of God and to walk in holiness by obeying the word of God and then on the Lord's day to read the word of God and to teach its laws and decrees to the people of God. Paul said... To Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And so the preacher's job is to take this book and stand before the people from Genesis to Revelation, line upon line, precept upon precept, and preach the Bible. Now, we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Bible doesn't save us, but it points to the one who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you preach the Bible, you are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ because he's found throughout the Bible. In the the Old Testament, he is concealed in shadows and types and prophecies. In the New Testament, he is clearly revealed. But but Jesus is is the theme of the Bible. This is a book about Jesus. We know that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate in flesh. And the Bible is the Word of God written. So on the one hand, we have the Word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we have the Word of God written, the Bible. I personally believe, and some might take exception with this, but I believe if you could turn this book into a person, you'd have Jesus. And if you could turn Jesus into a book, you'd have the Bible. And so when we preach the Bible, we are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. We are preaching the gospel. We, we are preaching that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that God sent forth His one and only Son into this world to go to the cross and there shed His blood on the cross that all who would repent and believe in Him might be forgiven and might be reconciled to God and become the sons and daughters of God and live forever with God. That is the message of the Bible. Now God forbid that any person would stand behind the sacred desk on the Lord's day to preach His opinions. God's people don't need to hear the opinions of the pastor. They need to hear what God has said, and God has revealed himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. The preacher's job when he stands in the pulpit is like that of the donkey that carried Jesus into uh, the city of Jerusalem on uh, on that Passover week when they were all crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They weren't praising the donkey. They were praising Jesus. And uh, the preacher's job is not to preach or accolades from the congregation. The preacher's job is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just, the, we're just the delivery boy bringing the message of salvation to those who gather to hear. That means the preachers must guard against being entertainers. God help us. that We have some uh, funny boys in the pulpit. The great Charles Spurgeon, in my estimation the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul, who preached in London during the second half of the 19th century, said, and I quote, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God shall despise her. Her. It has been through the ministry that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless his church. So that means the preacher's job is to fill the pulpit and not to fill the pews. Some of our churches think it's the preacher's job to fill the pews. Just get out and, as I used to hear when I was young, you just get out and shake the bushes and get people to come. That's your job, preacher. Well, every preacher ought to be involved in soul winning and evangelism, but the preacher's job is not to fill the pews. His job is to fill the pulpit, to have a word from the Lord when he stands on the Lord's Day before the assembly of God's people. Some years ago, a member came to me, and she said to me, Pastor, in the church I used to go to, the the preacher would always lift us up, make us feel good. And sometimes I come here and when I leave after church, I feel good, and sometimes I leave feeling bad. And I said, Well, Carolyn, it's not the preacher's job to make you feel good when you come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. It's his job to preach the Word of God. And it just may be that the sermon that day was going to make you feel good, and it just may be that the sermon that day is going to convict you of some area of your life that's not right with God. You're not going to leave feeling good, you're going to leave feeling convicted of God's plan you see the preacher's job is to con, is to afflict the comfortable and make the make the afflicted the preacher's job is to both afflict the comfortable and make comfortable the afflicted and you do that as you preach systematically through the word of God and so how shall we preach well as your pastor preaches, And uh, as I have sought to preach, systematically through the word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because the text determines the sermon. And so we should be less concerned with making our churches full of people and more concerned with making the people who come to our churches full of God. And so I, I believe this. I believe that people can develop an appetite for the Word of God that will grow with with the passing of the years. When I first went to Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn, 1979, I preached longer than they wanted me to preach. I was threatened. I'm going to put a big clock on the back wall so you'll know when to stop. And I said to this deacon, you can put it up there. It doesn't bother me at all. I'm going to preach till I'm done. Now, when I was in seminary, my seminary preaching professor, for whom I owe a great debt of gratitude, who taught me how to preach, I had 20 minutes maximum. I was as arrogant as I could be. I thought, I preach 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes. I can preach, teach twice as much truth in my lifetime. Now, it made sense to me when I was 20-something years old. It'll make some sense, but the important thing is that we don't just come to church to go home. I think some people come to church to go home. Seriously. I don't know why they come. Some years ago, Kim and I were in London. We were visiting our friends. The Evans and Alan Evans said to me, Saturday, let's go up to Liverpool to a soccer match. He didn't say soccer. He said football, but we call it soccer. And so we left early on a Saturday morning, drove about three hours to go to this, uh, what they call a football game. And we stopped about an an hour outside of Liverpool, a little village of Marberley where he had grown up and where his mother and father still lived. And his father joined us and three of us went to the football game and we were coming back to take Mr. Evans back home. We were driving through this stereotypical English village, and we drove past this village green, just like you see in a Hollywood movie. And uh, there was a cricket match going on, and so Alan said, have you ever seen a cricket match? And I said, no. He said, Do you want to stop and watch a little bit? And I said, sure. So we stopped, and there on the, on the village green, they introduced me to Alan's childhood pastor. This man was in his 80s. He'd been retired some time, but... Uh, He was there watching the cricket match and uh, so we chatted with him and uh, we got in the car to take Mr. Evans home and between the Village Green and home, uh, either Alan or his father said to me, this man was our pastor for 38 years and not one time did he ever preach more than five minutes. I thought, why bother? Why bother to get up on Sunday morning early when you can sleep in and bathe and shave and put on your best clothes for five minutes? Some of God's people need to learn to develop a deeper capacity to receive the Word of God. You you can do it. It just takes a while. So I'm not telling your pastor how long to preach. I'm just telling you all of God's people... Can can develop a, 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 a deeper capacity to receive the word of God because our lives are transformed as we receive the word of God delivered in the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we become holy men and women of God. So, how shall we preach? How shall Pastor Matt preach? How shall I preach? I pray for God to give me grace to preach with authority. When you preach the Bible, you are preaching with authority because you are preaching what God has spoken. And when you do so in the power of the Holy Spirit and you back that up by a holy life and the congregation knows that their pastor is a holy man of God, then God uses that in a powerful, powerful way. So I pray, Lord, give me grace to preach with authority. I pray, God, give me grace to preach with clarity. You want people to know what you're talking about. I never want somebody to hear me preach and, and, and walk out the door scratching their head saying, well, dear me, what was a what was preacher trying to get across today? Let them be mad, let them be glad, let them be sad, but never let them be confused. So Mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. Your preacher, your pastor, preaches with a clarity and authority, and then with passion. Means you you believe what you're preaching, not just delivering a talk. You can run to the golf course, but you really have convictions about the message that you are preaching. The people of God. In the province of God, in the grace of God, you have a pastor who is exceedingly bright. You all know that. And he has one of the most advanced degrees from a British university that uh, the most advanced degree that you can get. But he preaches with authority and passion and clarity. Thank God for that. Now, I, I, I try to be, uh, I try to use good grammar and try to pronounce words correctly when I preach. I think I do a pretty good job of that. I Worked hard at that for 50 years. But you could have great diction, you can be eloquent, you can be articulate, Be smooth of speech. Not believe what you're talking about. We don't need that. I'd rather hear a preacher say, "I done seen it," when he's actually seen something, than to say, "I have seen," when he ain't seen nothing. This book. This holy book contains the oracles of God. This is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is truth without any mixture of error. It'll see you safely home. I've staked my life and I've staked my eternal destiny on the veracity and the trustworthiness and the inspiration, the inerrancy, of God's holy word. What the United States needs, what the Baptist denomination needs, what the Methodist denomination needs, with all of its controversy, and I do salute you for voting 100% to leave that apostate group, is men of God, like your pastor, who will come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with a hot heart and a word from God to nourish and feed and challenge and edify and build up in the holy faith the people of God who gather to worship. Him. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.